0: Well, good morning. good morning. It is really good to be back with you guys. I haven't been here since before COVID. Any of you heard of that thing, COVID? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you guys, you guys here in California got to experience it longer than the rest of the country. <laughs> but happy Father's Day to everybody, to all the fathers there. And uh, it, is, it is good to be back here. Uh, and typically Father's Day, it's like, oh, well, let's give a message encouraging fathers. Well, I don't know if this will be encouraging or hurt. I don't know. We'll see. But it, what I want to talk about is something we don't like to talk about, especially as men, depending upon God. That's not a thing in a, a, American manhood, right? To depend on others. We think we're the rugged individualists. We could do everything. Yeah. God has a way of humbling us at times when we think too much of that. But, but when we look at this, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 6, mark chapter 6 and what we're going to do is take a look at the disciples and something where Jesus asked them to do something that we've probably read many times and yet not thought through what he's really asking them to do and and as I'm going to give you the you're not supposed to give the conclusion at the beginning but I'm going to anyway uh, what I want my my goal is for us to realize that whatever life is coming our way, and I got news for all of us, the what's coming our way I think in America is not what we ever expected as Christians we would be going through. I think personally that there's a persecution going to be coming of Christians, and I think that more and more we're going to need to realize who we depend upon. And so that is a lesson the disciples had to learn, and I think it's one that we may not like to have to learn, but I think The more we depend upon God, the easier the things, as hard as they may come, uh, will be. So this is Mark chapter 6. I'm going to start verses 7 to 13. And out of reverence for the Word of God, if you wouldn't mind just rising as I read. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. Uh, So I'm sorry if you have a pew Bible that is is a little bit different. But this is what Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written in Mark 6, starting in verse 7. And he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people. And healed them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we ask that at this time. That you in the personal Holy Spirit. Would illuminate your word. To our understanding and the application thereof. That we would leave this building different than we came in. That we would leave this building knowing you more. Loving you more. And worshiping you more. That we would be in awe of how great you are. Make us Less but in our lives that you make yourself greater. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we have in verse 7, you have Jesus summoning the 12. He summons them together uh, and sends them out in pairs. Now one of the things, if those who were who here yesterday, you know that my big emphasis is on how to interpret the Bible. I never want to... Uh, Every time I preach, I want people to understand not to just read the Bible. The worst thing you could do is read your Bible. Meditate upon it. Engage with it. Don't just read this. This is the creator of the universe who has spoken everything into existence and is speaking to us. So we don't just read this. Ask the questions. Why do you send them out in pairs? You ever think that? These are the things I think of. Why, why pairs? He says he sends them out in pairs. Well, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, Luke 9, 2 tells us that he sent them out for a purpose, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform miracles. Okay, now first I'm just going to do a side tangent, which I wasn't, isn't in my notes, but Pastor and I were talking about this actually on the ride over here. We, people sit there and say, oh, well, see, they were, they were to preach the gospel and do miracles, so we should do miracles. Okay, so just a quick side note, um, and if you want I can give you all the stats on this, but when we see miracles done by humans in the Bible, okay, there's only about 80 miracles in the Bible in four, four, roughly 4,000 years of history. And they're all in three periods of time. What they're all tied to is the writing of Scripture. Outside of the writing of Scripture, we only have seven or eight miracles that are done by human beings in 4,000 years. So Say seven miracles, 4,000 years. Why in the world would we expect to see them today? Just a side note. But they were out to, to proclaim the gospel and to do the miracles because they're in a, in a time when there was a silence of scripture. The miracles were to vindicate the, the speakers and the new writing of scripture. We see that throughout the, the Bible. But there, why pairs? Well, pairs do going out in pairs do a couple things. One, it provides support provides protection. It also provides using their differing gifts. Each of us are gifted differently. And when we go out in pairs, we, can, we are able to use the differing gifts that we have to minister to people. It also acts as an encouragement, because if you go out alone and, and you're getting rejected over and over again, it, it, sometimes it's good to have someone to encourage you. And I don't know if any of you who have had children, my, my wife and I noticed that after we raised our kids, that looking back, that we always, there was always a time where she was the one that was like the, the strong disciplinarian and I'm more the supportive one, or I was the strong disciplinarian and she was the supportive one. But, but it was that teamwork that helped us raise the, the kids together. And, and so sending them out in pairs also increases the gospel proclamation to the regions. But the thing is, is why send them out? Now, this is a he, they're being sent out and if you know anything about the disciples, everyone else seems to understand what Jesus would teach, except the disciples. You ever notice that? Like this is—if you ever wanted proof that the that the Bible was written by God—is because no people, no no men would write a book where they look like the complete idiots over and over again. But the—I mean, everybody else gets it, but they're going out into a culture that doesn't exactly want to hear. The message at least the religious leaders because this is a message that's undermining the whole religious system it's going to get them it would get them put out of the synagogues and they're being asked to go I I think we could see an application that's going to come our way soon because in America I think there's going to be a time where many people that profess the name of Christ are going to say maybe I should just keep quiet I can keep the job I can keep the friends I can keep out of prison. Well, this is when we look at what the disciples are sent to do. This is a reality that they could have faced. We, we'll see after Christ that they would be imprisoned for for proclaiming the same message. So, according to Matthew ten eight, they were given authority over demons, but also to heal the sick and raise the dead. Okay. It says in Matthew 10, 7, and 8, it says, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. The, the word send here is, is the Greek word apostello. We get the, the word apostle from it. It's a sent one. It means to be sent out, to be designated for a goal or purpose. And, and they're sent out, and they're giving Authority. Now, by the way, they were given the authority, which means they don't have the authority. Okay? And this this is this just is amazing when you look at this in in the light of our culture, the the if you're familiar with the word of faith movement and the way they teach, that they have authority. I noticed they never raise the dead. I've always noticed that all the Word of Faith people they never go to a hospital and empty it out the way Jesus gave the authority to the disciples. That's one of the things I've always asked. Anyone that tells me they have the the gift of healing, they have the authority to heal, I always ask them, is there a hospital near you? Is it empty? And if they say it's not empty, do you love your neighbor? (laughs) I'm just curious. No, the, the authority, the word for authority here means a power or right To give orders and make decisions. So Jesus gave the twelve the power and right over demons. Notice I say the twelve. Because this authority is, is tied to the fact it was given to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. Why? Because they're proclaiming a message that flies in the face of the Jewish teaching of the time. How do you know it's from God? Because it was tied to something that only God could do. So Jesus gives them an authority that no man can have so that when they proclaim this message, people would say, that's of God. That's the purpose of the the miracles, and that's why Jesus gives them this authority. Therefore, the authority is not that every Christian has uh, an ability to command demons to obey them. The authority was given for a specific purpose, to proclaim the gospel and so there are times as I mentioned there's three times in history that you see miracles like this. You have the time of Moses. What happens after Moses you have the first writing of scripture. There's a period of silence. And then after silence you have Elijah and Elisha come on the scene doing miracles. What happens right after that? The writing of scripture. And then there's a period of silence. And then Jesus comes on the scene doing many miracles. And what happens right after that? We have the writing of the New Testament. In each of those three time periods within a few with basically about 12 to 30 years of the miracles starting, you have the scripture being written. You have the proclamation of of something after a period of silence. And so this is something that we have to recognize when we look at this is that the miracles that they did were for a purpose. Now I'll, I'll ask you to contrast that with the miracles that people say they do today. Because the miracles that people say they do today is for what? Give me your money, <laughs> right? Oh, I could do these miracles. I can I can lengthen someone's foot by twisting it. If you, you know, that's one of the things they, that one guy does. Most of what people call miracles are not miracles most of the things that people call miracles are actually God's providence. God's natural working in this, in this world. He's not doing something supernatural. He's working through the natural means. And yet a lot of people will call that a miracle so that they make it sound like these are happening all the time. You know, it's a miracle. I found a parking spot. <laughs> By the way, that was Charles Stanley. So don't think that it's just word of faith people that believe that. So this was a specific authority given to a specific people for a specific time and a specific purpose. But when we think about depending upon God, I want us to take a look at verses 8 to 11 and the instruction that he gives to the twelve. Because this this is something that we end up seeing <clears throat> that we'll, we'll end up seeing that he is asking them to do something that is not normal for that day and time. He says here in verses eight, he says, And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. He added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, go from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for testimony against them. Now, I will admit here, for those who, who get, like to study deeply, get into some issues of Greek, there is a textual variant here. Textual variant is where someone that was copying you know, makes, makes a mistake. There there's, is an issue between Mark chapter 6, verse 8, and Matthew 10, 9 and 10, all, also with Luke 9, 3. And that difference is that Mark instru- says that they're instructed to take a staff, where Matthew and Luke, that says not to take a staff. The difficulty with it is I can't seem to figure out, I don't see anywhere in, in the Greek manuscripts where I can see that there is a textual variant there. And so it, it seems that Mark, for whatever reason, encouraged them to, to take the staff where the others said not to. Um, but the issue is, is that why, why take a staff? It's the only item that he was instructed to take. Now, as we read through this, I'm sure many of you have read through this passage many times. Have you ever taken the time to think about each of the items that they're told to take or not to take? Well, that's what we're going to do now, because what I want us to do is to see, again, we should not just read the Bible, meditate upon it, engage with it, Ask these questions. Study these things. There is nothing more valuable we could do in our life than to dig deeply and study the Word of God. So, what does a staff do? A staff would typically be a, a limb from a tree, uh, something that uh, someone would would use and, and uh, for the purpose of support for walking. But it can also have a secondary purpose. See, someone are asking about my cane. This is actually from Israel, uh, made out of a kea wood. And you're going, well, wait, you don't seem to need to walk with it. It does help supporting and walking, but it's actually the only weapon I can carry on a plane or California. <laughs> you see, this is the, what we, they would have is we're used to areas where we walk. And if any of you have been to Israel, you know the, the terrain is very hilly, very rocky. So having something that would support the weight, could be very valuable. But when you're going out in groups of two in areas where bandits were known to be, it's very good to have something that you can use as a weapon. And if any of you question whether this would be a good weapon, come up later and hold it. And you'll see some of you have and went, wow, that's really heavy. Yes. Um, And if you're trained how to use it as a weapon, (laughs) it acts as a very good weapon. But that's that's what a staff would do. A staff was something that wasn't just, a, just for as a walking stick, but it was also something that would help them in a protection. This was a time that, uh, where the, the Romans would have packed down roads. We, we speak of the Roman roads, but most of the people wouldn't walk along those roads as much as they'd be walking through the hill country. Remember, they're being sent out into the regions where they'd have to walk up hills, walk in soil that, that isn't packed down. So, so a staff is not only offering support, but protection. It would also be one uh, that could be a deterrent. Now see, in our day and age, when I walk with the cane, it doesn't look like a deterrent. It makes me look like I must be weak. That would be their surprise. But, but the reality is that when you see someone walking with a, with a staff, you know that it could be used as a weapon in those days, and that would actually be a deterrent to some of the people that would, might want to, to rob them. Now, we're going to see they didn't have anything to rob, but people don't know that. So, you, we end up looking that this is something that is also could be used as a weapon or protection against wild animals. Okay? So, so we have the, that. The first thing he says to do is to, to bring a staff, something to protect yourself, something to support yourself. But then there's several things not to bring. Jesus says for them not to take any bread. And you go, well, okay, you know, I don't really like bread so much as long as I can get a good steak. No, bread was the basic food in those times. It was was a basic necessity. He's basically telling them, don't bring any food. Don't bring your basic needed substance. It means that they would have to rely upon others. He's basically telling them that when you go out, you go out and don't have the food because you're gonna trust that God will provide others to provide for you. That is such an American way of thinking, right? Yeah, no. No. This is this flies in the in the face of the way we would think because we we can't. It is very hard for us to conceive what it was like in those days. What happens when we get hungry and we're on the road? We just stop at the local convenience store and we have a plethora of things we can choose from. When they're walking and there are no stores, they're just in, a, in the terrain, if they don't bring food, guess what they have to eat? Nothing. They're having to depend upon God for their basic food. We, we don't struggle with that so much. We don't have to struggle with where our next meal is coming from too often. I remember meeting someone uh, that I met from, he was from Africa, and he, he said to me, he's like, you Americans are so rich. I was like, I don't think I'm that rich. He's like, oh, you guys are wealthy. You guys can eat a different meal three days a week for a whole month and never have the same thing twice that's how he called what he considered wealth we take that for granted don't we have you ever considered you know how how wealthy we are compared to the rest of the world but when you don't take any bread with you, you have nothing, you, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you're having to rely upon God. Uh, like I said, many of us don't understand that experience. I have. At um, a time in my life, I was homeless. I had no job, I had no income, and I had, uh, I had no place to call my own. I was still prideful, though. <laughs> Because I was actually a deacon in the church with a deacon's fund with thousands of dollars in the bank, and I refused to let the pastors know that I was the one in need. Pride's a funny thing, isn't it? But you know what? Even in the midst of the pride, where I wouldn't let people know that I was struggling, God still provided. I never went more than two or three days without food. Have a friend stop by hey, my mom cooked some food, you want, you want some? He had no idea. People would take me out for dinner, and I'd always bring some home. I even had, at, at, when I finally got a job and I was working, I, I had a young lady who realized, she, she figured out that I wasn't eating and figured out that I had no money, and so she bought four groceries of, of food, bags of groceries and left it on my desk. And that was, that was enough until I got paid. By the way, I married that woman. <laughs> Be careful, ladies, who you feed, just saying. But I understood what it was like to say, Lord, I, what am I going to eat today? Am I going to eat today? Well, the thing is, is that when we look at that, we have to realize that God will provide not our wants, but our needs. We have a lot of wants. And, and so God provided for the disciples through other people. But what do they have to do? Their dependence upon God means to depend on others. In, in other words, the lesson I didn't learn at the time was to let others, to let others know, hey, yeah, I'm hungry. Right? The disciples had no, no food to take with them. Another thing that's interesting is not to take a bag. What was the purpose of a bag? Storage. It would be like a a purse today or a backpack. Why would that be important? Well, you'd store food in it. You say, well, Andrew, what's the big deal? Why are you making such a big issue with that? Well, think about this. If they're not going to take any food with them and they're supposed to Get food from other people, and they don't have a bag with them when they go to the next town. Are they taking any food from the last house? No, because they got nowhere to keep it. Okay, so the, the the bags in those days would typically be made out of leather from animal skins and and a linen cloth, and they would basically put a, a drawstring and pull it together, and some that they could just throw over their shoulder, and, and it would be used to carry money. And some of us would go. I mean, carry money, that money's not that heavy. No, they didn't have paper bills back then. (laughs) They were heavy coins. The more money you carry, the more it weighs you down. But guess what? If you don't have a bag to carry the money, because they didn't have pockets, what do you have? Well, you don't have any money. So now you got no food, you got no money, and you're just going to go from town to town. So we have to remember that they were... um, They didn't have the local convenience stores that we have to just walk up and get something. Since Jesus instructed them not to carry any food nor any money, there's no use in carrying a bag because there's nothing, he doesn't want them taking anything with them. What he was trying to teach them is a lesson that God will provide. Now, I'm sure none of you are like me. When, when things happen in your life and something goes wrong, the first thing you do is you cry out to God and you pray and you talk to him. You're, you're not like me that you wait to try after you try to fix it yourself and screw it all up, then you go to God. I, I understand. You guys go to him first. I'm more like the disciples, okay? But, but God's trying to teach them that lesson. He's putting them in an experience to say, Look, you're going to have nothing, and as you have nothing... We want you to to trust that God will provide. I will tell you this. That period of time that I was homeless, probably the best spiritual time of my life. I I didn't have anything to distract me. (laughs) It was was a great time of, of being with God and just watching how he would work. And that's what the disciples had to learn. And so they don't have a bag. They're, you know, so if somebody gives them something, you know, because they'd stay in one person's home, they go to the next home, they're not taking it with them. Now, this flies in the face of the, the, the way the, the people would be in that day. Because what, would, what was very common, hospitality was very important. You'd, you'd open your home, people would come in, they'd stay with you, and you'd provide for them. And when they leave, you'd give them money, you'd give them food, you'd give them things to take on their journey. That was expected in the culture. But Jesus is saying, no, not only are you not going to take any food, but you have no way to carry anything to the next location. It means that they cannot receive the hospitality that might be given as they leave. Jesus doesn't want them to be tempted to say, okay, let me, let me just take a little because I don't know what I'm going to get at the next town. Because as, as we already read, there's going to be times where he's, they're going to have to kick the dust off their feet because they're not going to be welcomed. Well, if you go to one town, and it takes a, a day's walk to get to one town, and you have no food, and you kick the dust off, and now you go to the next town a day's walk, two days' walk later. Remember, these towns were not just right on top of each other. And, and so they have no way to store anything. God wanted them to depend, or sorry, Jesus wanted them to depend upon God for every step of the way. He did not want them to start off with anything and he didn't want them to pick up anything along the way so that they have any kind of reserve. Because he also tells them not to bring any money. So they can't go buying things. They can't take money with them. Money would be good for food or lodging. If, If someone's not welcoming them into the home and you have money, at least you can go to an inn. By the way, the inns weren't too safe in those days. So so the fact is that by not taking money means that they don't have the resources to take care of themselves. They were to go out without any provision. Now we live in a very self-reliant culture. And it's extremely difficult for Americans to trust and rely on others to care for them. We want to do things ourselves, don't we? We're, We're good at that. We're also good at making a mess of it when we do it ourselves. But make, we need to realize that what God wants for us is to depend upon him. I actually think the closest we get to God is, when the, is the more that we depend on him. When we stop thinking we can handle things and just say, God, what are you going to do? When things go wrong, to say, you know, what is the Lord going to do in this? My first pastor had a, we, we rented a seven-day Adventist church. They weren't using it on Sunday. And so we would we would go in there, and there would be things that would go wrong. I mean, there would be a flood. We once had an infiltration of bats. Yeah, picture that during service. And, and, and there was one where, you know, I, I actually, before church started, I had to find, get these bats and try to catch them but there was one I didn't catch, and he flew around and during the middle of service. Driving try, try that when preaching. <laughs> and every time I, I remember calling, I remember calling him, every time I'd call him from the, the church phone to the house, to sort of like, hey, we got a flood, we got no electric, we got bats flying everywhere around here. His response was always, oh, it's going to be a great day. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. I always remember that, like, I'd be like what is wrong with you? <laughs> Like, this is not a good thing. But he always was seeing and seeing that God's going to do something because we can't solve this. There was always his attitude. We can't solve this, so God's going to do something. God wants us to rely on him and do things his way. We think we have a, a good plan for how to do things. We have a plan for our life. And often we're not content with the plan that God has for our life. I think contentment is one of the things really not preached enough these days. If we think about our culture, contentment is a major issue. Because they don't depend upon God. I mean, if you look at the whole debate about transgenderism, it's an issue of contentment. They're not content with the way God made them. They're not relying on God to say, God, what are you going to do with the body you gave me? They're going to try to play God and change that. And they never seem to be happy anyway afterwards. So it really wasn't the solution. But that's what human beings want to do. We want to fix it. Christ wants the disciples to to learn, no, you're not going to fix these situations. You're going to live you're going to go out. You're going to proclaim the gospel, and you're not going to be able to take anything with you. You're going to have to rely on God. He even tells them when it comes to clothing. He tells them to bring sandals. Now, now sandals are um, where it would be common footwear in that day. Okay, in the ancient Near East, it was just basically uh, you know a piece of leather with a with a, a strap for around the toe that they'd have. In fact, in case you don't know, they didn't create the left and right shoes until 1818 in Philadelphia, which is where I live. But sandals would be a, a standard thing because, remember, I described the, the terrain. It's a rocky terrain. Any of you like walking barefoot on rocky terrains? Okay, these, these would be rocks where, be, where you, you can get cut easily. So, so having those, the sandals, again, is what? Protection. So it's interesting, as we end up seeing, what is it that he says to take with him? Things of protection, but not things of provision. Protect yourself, and then rely upon God for everything else. They they would have the tunics that he tells to take. He says, not to carry two. Well, why? How many of you enjoy being in the same clothes for... A week. How about a month? If you don't have a, a change of clothes, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to go down to a, a local lake if you find some water, and you're going to get in the lake, and you're going to wash the clothes with yourself. They're not even to take anything anything extra with them. And a tunic would would be much like a, a shirt worn as an, an undergarment. Okay, and so it, it's it's the idea of they have. Not to carry anything with them. By the way, they wouldn't be able to carry the extra tunic because what are they not having? A bag. Right? He, he then talks to them about something of the, the lodging. Another area he wants them to rely on God. Now, in the first century, uh, actually in much of the Middle East today, hospitality is, is expected. I mentioned that. It, it was a shame to, show, uh, to not show hospitality to a stranger. To, to us, in our culture, you know, we, have, we, we wouldn't open our door to someone we don't know, right? However, that's not the case everywhere. I, I remember reading about a case where an American journalist, his, his car broke down in the Middle East, and he tried to, to, to get somewhere where he could stay, and one of the, the people whose houses he came to, that person rejected the American, because at the time, America was at war in the Gulf, and the tribal leaders took that man out and stoned him to death for the shame that he brought on the community. And the guy thought, hey, these, this is an American. They're at war with us. So, so we don't even understand the idea of hospitality like they do. But that's the, the mindset they would have. That if you have someone come to town, you must open your home to them. And, and so what we end up seeing is that it's different than our culture. John MacArthur writes this, quote: In a day when inns were often sordid and very dangerous, travelers generally stayed in, home, in people's homes as they journeyed from one town to the next. And the twelve were no exception. But Jesus had added an important caveat in that regard. Wherever they went, once they decided to enter a home for the purpose of lodging, they were to stay there until they left town. Given their power to heal diseases and cast out demons, they likely received invitations to upgrade their comfort by changing homes. But they were not to move from from house to house as if to receive money from more people. After they accepted the initial invitation, they were to decline all other offers, unquote. You see, that would be the, the thing that would be common in that day. If you're, if you're a traveling, uh, traveling around, you travel, and if you have something to offer, well, the people in the town, you start being the talk of the town, and someone wants you in their house. Because hosting that person becomes an honor to your household. So as the disciples go around and they can heal everybody in town, word's going to get around about them. They're casting out demons You realize the big wigs in the town are going to say, "Hey, why don't you come to my home?" Now here's the reality: when they first get to town, it's more likely the big wigs are not going to talk to them. So, whose home they're they probably going to go to first? The lower, lowly people. And he says, "Don't leave that place." This flies completely in the face of the word of faith movement today, doesn't it? Because you wouldn't actually even see them in this sort of area. Always always warning to see, like, Joel Steen go to Iran. Not gonna happen, right? So, so the reality is that you, here they're told no, you don't try to find something that's more comfortable for you. You don't try to go somewhere where you can get a benefit. You go to those who will receive you and you stay with them. They should be accepting what's ever offered to them and be grateful. Do, do we have that mindset? Yeah, I I'll, I'll just be a little personal with you, right now I'm going through a time. I have some people that are slandering me, and, and it's very interesting because the Lord has really humbled me. Not, to, it's all His work, but it hit me one day. I was talking about contentment. I'm going through a book, a Puritan book on contentment, and all of a sudden I went, "You know what, Lord? I deserve so much more than someone slandering me. <laughs> like if that's like, I deserve far worse than that." Like, okay, if, if that's, that's it, thank you, Lord. Like, I, so it literally has changed my mindset as I think through, depending upon God, to say, you know, everything that I typically would look at in my life and go, woe is me, poor me. Suddenly I go, wow, that's it? I deserve far worse than that. But instead of having eternity in a lake of fire, I'm a child of the king. I have eternal life. I have a a home with Christ to look forward to. Uh, Okay, so someone's talking bad about me. Let's do the comparison, right? All of a sudden, all the things we think as hardships in this life, they, they fade away. The more we depend upon God, the more we're going to see what He is doing in our life, the less we're going to look at our circumstances and complain. And that's the lesson that He wants these disciples to learn as they're depending completely on God for everything. What He's telling them to do would distinguish them from all of the other teachers that would travel around and teach. Who are always looking to get money, to, to get upgrades. They they constantly be looking to, to get things for themselves. And here the disciples are told, Say no to those things. That's gonna cause people to go, wait a minute, there's something different with these folks. They're not looking to get for self. I remember I did a debate at Montclair State University with a well known Muslim. They paid him ten grand to come speak. I knew that because, well, I called their offices to find out how much it cost, to, because I knew the year before they couldn't afford the guy. So I, to, I was curious. One of the things I said during the debate, you paid him good money to come, and he lied to you to get the speaking gig. He lied because he said he used to be a Christian minister, and he never was, and I exposed that. But I said, I paid my own way to be there because the message of the gospel was far more important than any money I could receive. And so he did not like that. In fact, he now has in his contract that he's not to be on stage with a Christian anymore. I guess the chance of a second debate's gone. But but what we end up seeing is it sets them apart from the traveling teachers that would go from house to house looking to get things for themselves to get resources. And, And so they end up acting different. And they have to rely upon God through, throughout this. And, and we end up seeing that the result becomes, the, or the reception we see in verse 11. So the whole thing he's trying to say is I want you to act different than everybody else around you, to rely upon God, which is very different even for us today, even for Christians. I, I, look, I don't know, we don't have any record of it, but did the disciples maybe sneak some food? Be, let's be honest. How many of us would get an energy bar? Yeah. How many of us would want to just, you know, kind of tuck a little bit in our, in our tunic? I mean, maybe keep a couple coins with us. I mean, if we're going to be honest, we don't have any record of the disciples doing that. But would we be willing if the Lord said, I want you to go out Proclaim the gospel. Take nothing with you. Rely only on those who who come and provide for you. And just trust God. You guys are probably better than me because I would probably bring some food. Verse 11 says this, And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. Now, now, this is was a, a common thing that you'd have happen when they'd leave a town. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things uh, Jewish people, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this for those who don't know my background, I am Jewish, so I'm not saying this as a slight on, on Jewish people, but Jewish people, especially the more Orthodox, um, just don't associate with Gentiles. In fact, don't like them. Why? Because, well, the the rabbis would say that fellowshipping or being with a Gentile makes you unclean. I mean, that's kind of a different mindset, right? I mean, it gives you a self-righteousness that you think. And so one of the things they would do is if they went through a Gentile town, when they got to the edge of the town, they would kick the dust off their feet because they don't want any of the Gentile dust coming into the land of Israel. Even when they would go through Samaria... Which was, in fact, what often they would do is walk all the way around Samaria. Because Samaria was people that were half Jewish, half Gentile. Even with that, they'd walk all the way around. Take the extra, because this is a time where you didn't have cars, remember? It could be several days walk if you have to do that. But they would do it to avoid going through a Gentile town. So, so this was a testimony, but they're not going to Gentile towns. They're going to Jewish towns and he's saying to to if, if you're not received there to treat them as if they're gentiles the the jewish people of the time would understand the the idea of shaking off the dust that there was a traditional way of of saying it's a scorn for the town and and they would understand that and and so this is what jesus is saying if they're if they're going to act that way you treat them as if they're they're not believers because the Jewish people thought they were. They thought just the fact that they're Jewish, they were God's chosen people. In fact, some of you may of you that remember my testimony. That's how what I said to the guy who shared the gospel with me. I'm God's chosen people. I'm in like Flynn. That's what I thought. But you end up seeing that when travelers ventured outside of Israel upon returning They would kick that that dust off their feet, symbolizing they were leaving the unclean, contaminated lands of the Gentiles, and it was left behind them. And so what the Jews understood with this symbolic protest, very different than the protests we do today, um, but that was a a protest uh, against the uncircumcised pagans. Jesus applied that as a judgment on the Jews that would reject the gospel, and Twelve were sent out to the lost sheep of Israel. And now they're, they're basically not being received, condemning them and saying, you're no different than the Gentiles. That would be something they would understand. Do you think now that you have an understanding of the, the way people understood what it meant to kick the dust off your feet? Do you think the local townsmen would be appreciative when you get outside the city limits and they see you kicking the dust off your feet? No, that, that would also spread. So not only did they hear the gospel, a gospel that says that without Christ we're, we're going to be condemned to eternity in a lake of fire, but then to have that symbol being done. He he ends up saying in, in Matthew 10, 11, and 12, this is a Corresponding passage, it says, And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave the city. As you enter the house, give your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing. Whoever does not receive you or heed your words, As you go out of the house or the city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It was supposed to be a condemnation to them that they are outside of the kingdom, a people who think they're the only ones in the kingdom. So we must not be surprised when we go out and get the rejection of the gospel For, for those who regularly evangelize, um, we're not surprised. We're, we're actually, okay, we're more surprised when someone's receptive to the gospel. <laughs> we're used to the rejection. In fact, I'm, I'm probably nicer to the people that reject me when I try to hand them a gospel tract, because I at least want them to, you know, to not hate the gospel, because I may be the only thing they hear of. So if I'm handing them a gospel tract, and they're like, I don't want one, I'm usually like, well, have a nice day. I want to be polite to them. One of the things I noticed, I'm actually nicer to the people that say no to me. I shouldn't be, but I just seem to be. So you've got to remember that when when we are out delivering the message, proclaiming the gospel as the, the disciples were, we must be expecting that there will be rejection. In our culture, what I believe is coming, we're going to see a stronger rejection than America has ever known. I grew up a generation after the Holocaust. I grew up in Hebrew school learning about the signs to recognize the next Holocaust. I've been saying for three decades now, the Holocaust is coming to America, but it will not be the Jewish people. It is the Christians. You doubt that, go look at what happened in LA this weekend, right? They're going to honor a bunch of people whose sole purpose is to mock the Catholic church. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I don't support, because I think Catholicism will still take you to hell. But the fact is, they just see that as Christianity. And and they're going to honor them for saving lives. Okay. But what we end up seeing is, Matthew 24, 9 says, they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. That's what we should expect. But Jesus also said, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear him who can kill body and soul. Matthew's account of this event, Jesus provides a little bit more instruction. He says this in Matthew ten sixteen to 23. Behold, I send you out as sheep, In the midst of wolves, to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony before them to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But wherever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. You know, it's quite interesting about that. That was the message he gave to them before he sent them out. Without food or provision. He was saying, hey, I'm gonna send you guys out, and this is what you can expect. You're gonna you're gonna be sheep among wolves. They'll throw you in courts. Sign me up? Yet no. (laughs) Right? But guess what? This is what God calls us to do. He just as he sent the twelve to go out and preach the gospel. And the word for preach there means to proclaim in the open air. It is is to to proclaim what God is doing. But the message that they had was to proclaim the message that though you and I, every one of us, I know something about everybody here in this room. Actually, I know a lot of things about all of us. Every one of you in this room knows God exists. And if you doubt that, it's, well, bring it up with God because he said so. He never lies and he knows everything. So I'll trust him. I also know something about all of us. We all break God's law. Every one of us, we lie, we'll steal, we'll cheat, we covet. And that's sin in God's sight. The message that he gave to them to proclaim is that though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God made a way of escape. At the cross 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came to earth and died, when he paid an eternal fine. Being an eternal being, he could do that. And he paid the full weight of sin that we could be set free. That's the message to proclaim. Brothers and sisters, those who are here who you're, you know Christ, what's the world gonna do to us? I mean, really, what, what, are they going to beat us? The the more they beat us, the more we're going to look forward to being with Christ. Read through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Even even as our our body fails and we start struggling with things and then we have to walk with a cane, not because it just looks kind of neat, but because we need it. What does it cause us to do? Depend upon God. And the more we depend upon God, the more we see what he is doing, the more we want to be with him, the more we have a love for him. And the world could do what it wants. The more it throws at us, the more we're going to want to be with Christ in heaven. The more we depend upon him, the more that the world throws at us isn't going to matter. The story of a a man in South Korea, who got saved and felt he was called to be a missionary to North Korea. Who wants to sign up for that? He did. He got arrested. He was beaten. And every time they beat him, he praised God and prayed for his attackers. How do we know that story? Because one of the guards got saved and escaped North Korea and told the story. Because he couldn't believe that the more he would beat this guy, the more the guy prayed for him. And he would thank God for a beating. And the guy could not understand someone that would depend upon God that greatly. Let's make a difference in this world. Let's be very different than it. Rather than relying on self, let's rely upon God so much that the world says there's something very different there. That even if they want to throw things at us and beat us or throw us in jail, no matter what life has to throw at us, we'll look to see what God will do through our lives. Let's pray, and then I'll I'll mention some products that we have in the back. Heavenly Father, just so grateful that we have your word, that you, you teach us Through what you gave to the disciples, we need to depend upon you, to rely upon you. We're not comfortable with it, Lord, but we need your help. We ask that you would draw each one of us closer to you, that whatever we're going through, whatever is happening in our lives, that we would look to see what you will do through it. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, they have not converted, they, have, they still believe they can get to heaven on their own. May you right now where they sit, bring them to repentance. That they would see their need for you. That they need what you did on the cross as the only means of forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.